Hey, friends. It's great to see you and to see so many familiar faces. I, I rejoice. Obviously heard a lot about you and prayed for you and rejoice this morning to be with you. I rejoice especially over that announcement. That's really great, isn't it? Um, years from now when saints are all saying to one another, hey, where were you when Garrett Cal was announced? I can say, I was there. So what fun that is. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to be thinking about church membership and discipline. I, I think, David, you asked me to address those two topics with you. I have spent the last, this may sound strange, but I've spent the last two, three, four years thinking about, uh, writing about, speaking about church membership and discipline. And what I want to just kind of do for you is sort of open up my notes for you. I know you are excited about that. 80 degrees and we're talking about church membership. You must be Christians, all right, to be here. Uh, They are tough topics for people to think about these days, especially. I think sinners have always been slow to want to be held accountable for their sin. I think it's an especially difficult topic for us in American culture. We view the local church and what it is with a number of cultural distortions. Let me, let me name four of those cultural distortions that we come to the church with and, and, and how we view what the church is. First, we view the church individualistically. So it's like you pull up to the church parking lot at 10.30 or 11. You come to the service to get serviced, tune-ups for your soul in 60 minutes. Maybe you talk to a couple of people afterward, and then you leave. And that's church. And you live the Christian life the rest of the week pretty much on your own. It's, it's about you and Jesus, right? So we view the church individualistically. Second, we approach the church consumeristically. So if the church is a service provider, well, that means you only join a church after doing a little bit of comparison shopping. I like the music here. Uh, There's not really good programs for my kids, though. It's a good thing they have a return policy. I'm going to shop around a bit more. Uh, Third, we approach the church romantically. That is, we go rightly expecting to experience God's love. But love in our culture is not quite the same thing as love in the Bible. It's not, in Jesus' words, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Rather, love is about self-expression and self-realization. If you love me, you'll let me become all that I'm meant to be, uh, to express myself in the way that God has intended. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never calls anything wrong. It is not dogmatic about truth. It never exercises authority. Love is always tolerant, always unconditional, always sets you free. This is how I think our our culture understands love. Think Jane Austen. Think Meg Ryan and so many other movies. 
And when we view love like this, we unthinkingly adopt our culture's view of love and import it into the church. And so we treat the church as a place that should never make us feel bad, where we hear about God's unconditional love for us, and we learn to become all that we're meant to be. And if you speak to me about my sin or confront me in the way that I'm going, well, then you're being unloving. Uh, Fourth, we approach the church voluntaristically. It's one more voluntary organization, like so many soccer clubs or charity organizations. So we join by our decision, we exit by our decision, period, as long as it's satisfying our needs. And so, friends, we, we, we come to the church with these cultural distortions. And when we view the church individualistically, consumeristically, romantically, voluntaristically, what do you think happens to our understanding of what church membership is and what church discipline is? Well, membership at best in those circumstances is just one more pragmatic tool for aiding in Christian growth and fellowship, if it's helpful. So is your Sam's Club membership helping you get cheaper groceries? Is your country club membership allowing you to play more golf? Well, if so, keep paying the dues. But are the fees too high? Well, then forget about it. Shop wherever you want. You're in charge. At worst, church membership is a way of promoting its own program or exalting the pastor's ego with all of our numbers. And church discipline Well, that's no way to attract customers, so forget about it. Okay, that's that's our sociology for today. That's that's where I think Christian culture as a whole lives. Let's let's talk Bible now. Um, These talks, you you see a text listed in your passage. This is not so much going to be an exposition of that passage. This is going to be more of a, a topical sermon. And... We're going to use scripture to think about this topic today of membership. And entirely, I'm going to be drawing it from the the Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, I'd highly encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to be flipping through it a bunch. Because I want you to see everything the Gospel of Matthew has for us. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Because what I think you're going to find there is that church membership is something different than what you think it is. In fact, I think you're going to find it's far more amazing and important than you think it is. And to do that, I'm going to to walk you through five different points. We're taking these from the Gospel of Matthew, as I said. Point one, if you're taking notes, here's point one. The question at stake in Matthew's Gospel is, who represents heaven on earth? The question at stake, or one of the main questions at stake in the Gospel of Matthew is, who represents heaven on planet Earth? And as you read through Matthew, you find that it has this fascinating dynamic, this interplay between heaven and Earth. And heaven is not so much where you go when you die as it is talking about God's domain, where where God rules, and Earth is our domain where we rule, where, frankly, sin rules. And it's all about this dynamic between God's rule 
in our world. Look at chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. Jesus shows up, or John the Baptist here shows up, verse 2. Jesus repeats this in in chapter 4, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, the rule of heaven is at hand. Well, who who are the beneficiaries of this rule? Flip to chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you've, if you've received the kingdom of heaven, how should you live? Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, and notice how the beneficiaries of heaven's rule pray. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven heaven. Well, and notice what such people strive after. Look at verse 19. Do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Uh, Flip over to chapter 13. Uh, Notice what a remarkable privilege it is to represent heaven. Verse 11. To you it it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And then you have all of these parables in chapter 19 and 21 and 22 about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then look at chapter 24. Such people who hope in the coming rule of heaven and and those who don't. You get this contract. Uh, Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Well, Well, who is this Son of Man? Look at chapter 28. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, I've just given you nine examples. The word heaven shows up 70 times in this book. It's a major thing. The word heaven and earth are coupled together 12 times in this book. Heaven belongs to God. It's where he rules And earth belongs to, well, who does it belong to? Look back at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. We have the kingdom of heaven, right? And now we have the devil showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Apparently they're Satan's for the giving. The world belongs to the rule of the evil one. And of course this is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the first theme I want you to see running across the Gospel of Matthew, this, this dynamic between heaven and earth. But, but sitting on top of this theme is a second theme about regime change, kind of like moving from one presidential administration to another, or even one form of government in a revolution, French Revolution, U.S. Revolution, Russian Revolution, one form of government to another. 
that theme is right on top of this theme. It's as if Jesus comes and he says to the nation of Israel and its leaders, okay, gents, time to pack your desks. A security guard is going to escort you out of the building. You're no longer in charge here. A little more flipping with me. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9. John the Baptist says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Flip over to chapter 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline. People from around the world will come and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, Israel, will be thrown out into the outer darkness. Flip to chapter 23. Why is Israel and its leaders being cast out? Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Your time's up. Okay, to, to sum up this, this thematic sermon, a survey, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel is preoccupied with the question who on earth represents heaven and, and what their lives are like. And what's more, it answers that question by pointing to a regime change. Who exactly speaks for heaven? What, 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 what are they like? We, we move from the nation of Israel to, well, to who? I mean, we're talking about, think about this, friends. Think about what's at stake here. We're, we're talking about who represents the king of kings. C- can you tell me who that is? Can you give me their names? I, I need someone to talk to, to know who represents God and can tell me what God is like and what, what God requires of my life. Is, is that a priest? Is that a pope? Is, is that a philosopher? Is it the Dalai Lama? Who, who do I talk to? What, what address do I show up? Because I need to find these things out. Uh, think about this for a moment. Throughout history, the greatest minds have been dedicated to answering this question. The greatest philosophers, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Hegel. Where do we get truth? Who can speak for truth here on planet Earth? Maybe it's the greatest poets. Homer, Shakespeare, Auden. They're inspired, Right? Of course, today people think it's ridiculous that you might be able to speak for truth, speak for heaven. I mean, what's truth really, right? It's all subjective anyway. It's all relative. The only people who claim to speak for truth are are the nut jobs and the cult leaders. Or maybe if if you're a little bit more spiritual, you you would say God is inside of you. So what is your gut telling you? That's where you're going to find the voice of God. Okay, point one. The question at stake in Matthew's gospel is who on earth represents heaven? Point two. 
Jesus represents heaven. Look at chapter 3. This is a short point. Jesus represents heaven. Chapter 3, verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. So you have this heavenly affirmation of Jesus. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus represents heaven. Anyone else? Point three. The local church represents heaven. Turn to Matthew 16. He's spending a little bit more time on this one passage, Matthew 16. And in the first part of the chapter, we find Jesus warning the apostles not to trust the teaching of Israel's leaders. As I said, their term of office had expired, and they'd be vacating the Capitol building shortly, carrying the contents of their desks and their boxes, right, on the way out. And then look at verse 15. Who do, who do you say that I am? Verse 16 Simon Peter, probably on behalf of all the apostles, answers, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus affirms Peter's answer, and he says it comes from the Father in heaven. And then he continues, look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, right here we have, we have the first of two times in all of the Gospels in which the word church is used. And here Jesus seems to be talking about the universal church. That is the heavenly and end time assembly of all of God's People. Jesus says he will build this heavenly and end time assembly. But how will he build it? Well, the text tells us here he will, he will build it on this rock. Well, what's the rock? Well, theologians have long debated is it the confession or is it Peter? Well, I think it's both. You really can't have one without the other. Uh, theologian Ed Clowney puts it like this, the confession cannot be separated from Peter, neither can Peter be separated from the confession. In other words, Jesus is not going to build his church on words or on people, but on people confessing the right words. Okay? Jesus will build his church on confessors of the gospel. What's fascinating about this passage to me is is this interplay between heaven and earth. Uh, Peter rightly confesses who Jesus is, and Jesus says that Peter's answer comes from heaven. Jesus standing on earth says your answer comes from heaven. And then in the very next breath, he authorizes Peter with the keys of the kingdom to do the same thing to represent what's bound and loosed in heaven on earth. Okay, what, what does it mean to bind and loose? 
That, that's the obvious next question, isn't it? Well, well, biblical scholars often talk about binding and loosing as what the, what the rabbis did in deciding whether or not a law, words, applied to a certain person in a certain situation. And so they, it was a judicial activity. Does this law apply to this person in these particular circumstances? And Jesus is giving the church this very judicial authority to stand in front of a confessor, to consider their confession, and basically to make a declaration, a judicial declaration on earth, on heaven's behalf. That's what we're doing with the keys of the kingdom in binding and loosing. Whoever is holding the keys of the kingdom and keys are always a symbol of authority in Scripture, has the authority to announce heaven's judgments concerning a who and a what. A what, what is a right understanding of the gospel, and a who, who gets it, who has a right understanding of the gospel. This is remarkable. Think about what this authority is. Now, here in this passage, it's clearly the apostles holding this keys. Uh, They, the apostles, had heaven's authority for declaring on earth who belongs to heaven. Okay, does anybody else have these keys? The apostles have it. Does anybody else? Turn to chapter 18. And this is where we find that Jesus uses this word church a second time. This This is the second occurrence of the word and only other occurrence of the word church in the entire four Gospels. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 19, which is a judicial setting. He's taking that judicial moment in Israel's life and he's, he's saying, this is what's going on right now. There's, there's a judicial activity going on right here in the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Where is this authority coming from? What is this authority? Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so this, this passage begins with a brother sinning, and his sin is out of step with his confession. He's, made, he's a confessor, right? He's a Christian, he's a brother. But his life is not in keeping with that confession. And so there's four rounds of confrontation which, which go on here. Round one, the confrontation is kept small, it's kept private. He doesn't respond, so it gets a little bit bigger, moves out, right? Two or three come to exercise this judicial question of, okay, he's confessing, but his life seems to be out... Does the first person misunderstand? We, we need to bring more people in here. Let's keep it small, but bring more people in, right? person still doesn't respond. All three agree together. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a real sin. So at this point, they bring in the church, right? 
and, and if, if the person responds, well, then their profession has regained credibility. But if the person doesn't respond, well, that, that, that's round four. They're to be treated as a pagan or a tax collector, somebody outside of the covenant community. Okay, and that's what we call church discipline or excommunication. We'll be thinking about that more next week. And Jesus explains all of this in verse 18 by invoking these keys that we saw from chapter 16, these keys of the kingdom. Whatever the church binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever the church looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. And notice he's, he's not talking about the apostles here or the universal church. He's talking about an ordinary, humble, local church as exercising this authority. The local church possesses jointly, gathered together, gathered together in his name, verse 20, two or three gathered in his name, possess this authority for declaring who on earth belongs to heaven and who does not. To be declared, a church member is to be declared a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has authorized you, brothers and sisters of Delray Baptist Church, to stand in front of a confessor, to hear their confession, and to consider their life and their words and say, do these things match up? Because if they do, we are going to declare this person a citizen of heaven. Just like Jesus did with Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ah, that's right. You got that from heaven. Heaven told you. So, friends, think with me for a moment how remarkable the local church is. This means that Brother Bob, Sister Sue, and Deacon Darnell down at Bumble Stew Baptist speak for heaven more than all the Ivy League philosophy departments do. More than the United Nations does. More than Congress and the Supreme Court. This humble little church speaks for heaven. It's not just a building. It's not just a place you go once a week to get your spiritual jolt. It's where heaven comes to earth. It's where the truths of heaven are spoken. The things of heaven are handled. The people of heaven find fellowship and life and community. Do you praise God for the local church? Are you amazed by it? Do you pray for it? Or do you take it for granted? Neglect it? Complain about it? The local church is God's embassy on planet Earth. An embassy filled with citizens of the kingdom. That brings us to point four. Point four. We don't join churches, strictly speaking. 
We can use that language, fine. But strictly speaking, we don't join churches, we submit to them. We don't join churches, we submit to them. I spent five months, junior year of college, in Brussels, Belgium. And in that time, my passport expired. And if you're a U.S. citizen, you can't live in a foreign country with an expired passport. You can't leave the country if you get in trouble and they take you to the police department, you'll be in more trouble, you have an expired passport. So I went down to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels, Belgium, showed it up, showed it to them, the person kind of typed in the computer, oh yes, I see your record here, you're a, you're a U.S. citizen, they stamped my, or gave me a new passport, they affirmed me as a U.S. citizen. They didn't make me a U.S. citizen, but they formally affirmed, recognized me as a U.S. citizen in a way that I, even though I am a U.S. citizen, I could not do. I don't have the authority to stand before the nations and say, hey, nations, U.S. citizen right here, recognize me. I don't have that authority. The U.S. Embassy did have that authority. Friends, that's what local church membership means. That's what it is. It's the embassy's formal affirmation stamp of you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You cannot stand before the nations. You're reading your Bible one day, you decide you follow Jesus Christ. You don't go into the bathroom and baptize yourself. Say, nations, right here, follower of Jesus, representative of Jesus. You don't have that authority. It's never been given to you in this book. The local church has that authority. The people say to Peter, what must we do to be baptized? He says, or what, what, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. Show yourself to the local church. Let them afford, affirm you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Do you see? And we, we do that through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We do it coming in through baptism. We do that on an ongoing basis, basis through the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing through those ordinances. We're declaring Jesus' embassy right here. You want to know what God is like, world? It's us. We'll tell you. In other words, friends, we don't join churches like we join clubs. We submit to them. It's an act of citizenship. People say to me sometimes, I don't see membership in the Bible. I say, well, the membership that you're looking for is probably not there. It's not Sam's Club. It's not a country club. You're looking for the wrong thing. It's citizenship. It's a people united around a Lord, a Lord who has authority, who calls his people to himself. It's not a voluntary society. It's voluntary from the state standpoint, yes, state can't make you join. It's voluntary from the standpoint you can decide which church to join, that's true. But it's not voluntary in that you have a choice to join or not, to submit or not. Christians are going to be united to the people of Jesus. The keys belong to the church, not to us as individual Christians. What is church membership? It is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It is a passport. It is an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It is the declaration that you are an official licensed, bona fide, card-carrying Jesus representative, capital R. A lot of metaphors there. Let me let's give, it, give it to you straight. In one sentence, church membership is a relationship between a church and a Christian 
in which the church oversees and formally affirms a Christian's profession of faith and life, and a Christian submits to this church's affirmation and oversight. So the church says to the Christian, I hear your gospel profession, I see your life, we, as two or three, gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, formally affirm you as belonging to us, as rightly wearing Jesus' name. And the Christian says to the church, I see that you are a gospel-proclaiming assembly of Christ's people. I submit myself to your affirmation and your oversight for as long as I am here living together with you. In many ways, it's like the I do of a marriage ceremony. It's not the life together as such, but it's that formal recognition of we belong to each other which is why people talk sometimes about a church covenant. That's what a church covenant is. It's that, that affirmation and oversight combined with the submission to the affirmation and oversight. It doesn't last all of life in the way a marriage covenant does. That's just an analogy, but it's like it in some ways. So this is not Sam's Club. This is not a country club membership. That's not what we're talking about. So, for instance, I have been having a conversation with a a person who has been attending Capitol Hill Baptist for a couple of years now, and this individual, I've, he wanted to get together with me to talk about a couple of elements in the statement of faith, and he said, ah, oh, I have a little problem with, with this little bit here on baptism, and I have a little bit problem here with this on, on that. And we talked it through, and here he's been attending for a couple of years, and he's not joined. And I did a little bit more asking about his past. I said, well, what, what church were you a member of before? And he said, well, actually, I've never been a member of church. I I was at this church for five years, this Presbyterian church, but I couldn't join there because of this problem. And and before that, I I, I attended that church, and I was there for three years, but but I couldn't join them because, because of this problem with their statement of faith. Okay, so here we have a very bright, very theologically astute individual who's refusing to submit himself to the oversight of Christ's people the people whom Jesus has given authority to exercise oversight. And so I said to him, you should probably stop taking the Lord's Supper. I'm not formally excommunicating you. I don't don't have the authority to do that, but I would pastorally encourage you to stop taking the Lord's Supper. You're an independent agent. You're the captain of your own ship. Nobody has responsibility over you. You're like the kid who says to, I didn't say this, but, you know, you're like the kid who says to a babysitter, you're not in charge of me. Well, your parents put me in charge of you, as long as I'm here. You're right, I don't have ultimate authority over you. The parents do, but the parent put me here. That's what the church is doing. Friend, if, if, if you call yourself a Christian... And if you have made a pattern of living independently of a local church, you should probably stop calling yourself a Christian. It's just like living a life of unrepentant sin. That's what you're doing. You're the kids saying to the babysitter, Jesus has charge of me, not over you. And in the very process 
disobeying Jesus. That's what's happened. The local assembly, your church, is where Christians go public to declare our highest allegiance. It is the outpost or embassy giving a public face to our future nation. It's where we bow before our king. We call it worship. What is the church gathering? Well, the gathering is where our king enacts his rule through preaching and the ordinances and discipline. The the gospel sermon explains the law of our kingdom, our nation. And that's why the sermon is so central to what we do in our life together. And then we respond in prayer and music with his word. These are the laws of our nations. And in them we rejoice. And in, the, in our king we rejoice. And it's his, his coming that, that we await. And we declare that in our, in our words of, of prayer and music. And then through baptism and the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We, we wave the flag of our nation. One last point. Who's it for? Who's membership for? Point five, church membership is for repentant and baptized sinners. Church membership is for repentant and baptized sinners. So Israel and the leaders were evicted from office because they were disobedient and shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, right? Does that mean we have to be really righteous to be a member of the church, to be a member of this this heavenly embassy on planet earth? Okay, just a little bit more flipping in your Bible. Look at chapter 5. Who is a heavenly citizen? Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. It's the kingdom of heaven. Look at chapter 7. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And finally, look at chapter 18. Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, those are the people whom the church is to receive as its members. The poor in spirit, those who follow God's will, those who profess the name of Jesus, Those who are humble, like little children, saying, lead me. You see the pattern? Christianity, and therefore church membership, is not for the strong. It's not for those who have their acts together, who are determined to follow their own wills, do it their way. It's for those who have tried and failed. It's for the teenagers who at certain 
moral ideals going into college and then watch themselves dramatically fail. It's for the parents who had certain expectations in their minds of what it means to be a good parent, and then they start comparing themselves to other parents and realize they're not very good. It's, it's for the person who, mid-career, had all of these ambitions and then stopped and looked at himself or herself and realized, I've been doing all of this for me. I've just been serving myself the whole time. My life has been all about me. Christianity and church membership is for people who have reached the end of themselves. Matthew 9, verse 12. Jesus said, those who, have no need of a phys- those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, friends, this is unbelievable. The Lord, the Father in heaven has unbelievably chosen to represent himself on planet earth, not with the morally perfect, but with the morally broken. That is the person who knows he or she is a sinner who hates that fact and who hungers for something different, something better for righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Friends, this is the heart of Christianity. We were created for good. We did bad. Jesus did good. He was humble, acknowledged the Father, followed the Father's will. And then he went to the cross to die for the sake of all of us who would turn away from our sin, who would say, yeah, that's sin, I, I am that, I, I'm done going that way, that only leads to death, who, who turn away from that and see his righteousness and say, I, I want that righteousness, I want his righteousness. Only that righteousness will save me. I, I'm just going to hold on to him. I can't come here and plead my own goodness. I can't plead my own righteousness. I can plead his. Uh, I can say he is righteous, and I, I can hold on to his garment and let him pull me in. And that's what we do when we become Christians. We follow him as Savior and King. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Has heaven shown that to you? Do you see that? If so, repent and be baptized. Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says to his disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Spirit. Why why baptize in their names? This is actually another theme in Matthew's gospel. This this word name keeps coming up. What what is that all about? Well, identity and name go together. My name is my identity. And if I'm being 
baptized into their name, that means their name is now upon me. Think back in chapter 18, verse 20. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Like Yahweh, the Lord, with the people of God in the Old Testament, putting his name on them. Jesus is saying now, you be baptized into the name of the triune God, and that's where I am. Earth, you want to know where I am? I'm there with those people, that humble little local church. That's where I am. My name is on them. So what happens when you're baptized? The church is sending a press release to the nations. Nations. You know what Jesus is like? Look here. Look at this individual. Jesus' representative right here. Do you see why we need to take church membership so seriously? Do you see what a big deal it is? We're speaking for God. We're bearing his name on earth. How seriously do we need to take this? Do you know what that's what Delray Baptist Church is? The world might not look and say, wow. It's because they don't have eyes to see yet. But that's what you're doing here every week when you gather. And that's why you need to continue to love one another and pursue one another when you go out of here. Jesus' name, right here. Let's pray. Father, why have you chosen the lowly things of the world and the foolish things of the world and the things that are not to represent you? Why have you chosen to confound the wise and the things that are? You are remarkable. We give you praise. We thank you for choosing such as us to represent you. Help us to do that today, this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.